Glad you're here this morning? Yeah. Well, then take out your personal copy of the Word of God and open it up to Hebrews chapter 2, second chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, page 1196, 1196 if you're using a pew Bible, second chapter of Hebrews. I have many, many boyhood memories. Some of them are quite good and others are, well, let's say that they're still with me. My grandfather had a camp in the White Mountains of New Hampshire on a lake. It was a wonderful place to go as a boy. It had a a log cabin where the sleeping quarters were, and there was just trees everywhere and sandy beach on the lake, and you could just get lost in the woods and, and play forever. As I got a little bit older, I, I would be able to take the boat out onto the lake and, and explore. There was a canoe. There was just everything imaginable for a little boy and his vivid imagination And every summer I would go to my grandfather's camp up there in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and spend at least a couple of weeks, sometimes longer than that. Many, many very fond memories I have of that time up there. But there is one memory I have of my time there when my grandfather allowed me to take out the boat by myself with the oars. I wasn't old enough for the outboard motor yet. So it was with the oars and I took the boat out and I was able to row around to Pirate Cove, or at least that's what it appeared to me to be a perfect place for pirates to hang out. And I just had a wonderful time out there on the lake and going around to different places. And I finally, it was time to come home. And so I rowed back and got out of the boat and pulled it up onto the beach and left to go about doing whatever other things little boys do. And sometime later, my grandfather said, David, where is the boat? And I I said, it's on the beach. And he said, I don't see it on the beach. And I said, it's right. It it was right there. (laughs) Well, by this time, the boat was a pretty fair distance out into the lake. The wind had whipped up some chop, and I had not pulled it up far enough onto the beach, nor had I tied it off. And so the chop kind of broke it loose, and it floated out into the lake. Well, my grandfather, not wanting to lose his rowboat, dove into the lake and began swimming out to retrieve his boat. Now, I was a little boy, so I don't know how far he swam, but it seemed like a mile to me. And the whole time I was thinking to myself, I am going to die. (laughs) My grandfather was a very big man whose hands, at least to a little boy, were very big. He finally brought the boat back to shore. And I remember him taking his wallet out of his pants and one by one putting the dollar bills on a rock to dry out. And then his in those days, pack of cigarettes and laying them out to dry. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm going to (laughs) die. It was at that point my grandmother intervened and said, David, I think there's something for you to do back up at the cabin. (laughs) And so I left and, and I think my grandmother endured the wrath for me. I'm never sure of that, but I 
suspect that she intervened on behalf of a foolish little boy. The spiritual life, if not properly attended to, can go adrift. We can drift off. Those of us who have walked for some period of time in the faith, I'm sure have encountered someone that we knew that was once walking with Jesus Christ and has now gone adrift. Their life no longer evidences the work of the Spirit of God. The things they once said they believed and practiced are no longer a part of their life. The Greek philosopher Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. I would amend his statement just a little bit and would say that for those who profess to follow Jesus Christ, that the unexamined life is exceedingly dangerous. It is exceedingly dangerous. The danger is of self-deception, a very real and present danger. Beloved, we are not saved by the profession of faith. We are saved by the possession of faith. It is not what we say we believe. It is indeed what we believe that determines our eternal destiny. So in the text before us this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, And I chose this passage in particular because we are at the end of the year. This is the last Sunday we have together in the year 2009. And I thought it would be very appropriate for us to take stock, to take stock of our own lives, to to do a little bit of self-examination, a little introspection to see where are we with Jesus Christ as 2009 comes to an end? Where are we? In the text this morning before us, verses 1 through 4, the writer of the Hebrews gives us three safeguards. Three safeguards that we must implement in our lives so that we will avoid spiritual drift. Three safeguards. Let me read the text for you this morning, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Let's take a moment and set a context here for this particular exhortation. The writer to the Hebrews, and we do not know for sure who that writer was, was addressing a community of professing believers probably somewhere in Palestine. These were Jewish Christians, or at least those who were professing attachment to Messiah, sometime 
just before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. For a Jewish person to attach themselves to Jesus as Messiah was to put themselves in a place of great jeopardy with regard to their spiritual heritage and their community involvement. The Pharisees had long before determined that anyone who professed the name of Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah would be removed from the synagogue. They would be excommunicated out of the of the religious life of Israel. And for us, we don't really understand that at the level of of threat that that was, because for them, their whole life revolved around the synagogue, unlike for most of us. Our life here, even with the church, although it's a close-knit community, we still don't operate at the same level they would in a synagogue. For them, their business relationships, all of their family relationships, everything they had ever known was all attached to the synagogue. So to be stripped of the synagogue was to be stripped of what it meant to live in their world. They would be complete outcasts. Convinced that Jesus was indeed Messiah, they had attached themselves to him. Many with an earnest faith, others with a weaker faith. And as the pressure came on them, as the persecution came down on them, there was a tendency for them to pull back, to to soften the sharp edges of Christianity to to take a little bit of the offense out of the message so that they could continue to get along. In fact, ideally, profess Christ as Messiah, Jesus as Christ, Jesus as Messiah, and remain attached to the synagogue, be able to have both worlds. Not have to give up all that they had known and family and so forth in order to choose for Jesus Christ, but to somehow bring the two together. Now, I think we can identify with that a little bit. We, too, have temptation, do we not, to soften the, the sharp edges of the gospel message, to want to be liked by our family and our neighbors and our, and our friends and business associates and so forth. There is a great tendency we have to want to soften the message a little so that we don't have to stand out so distinctly, so that we don't have to alienate people. So we can identify a little with what is going on here. But this is the background behind this whole letter to these Hebrew Christians. It is to cling to Jesus Christ and to him alone. To get out of the temple, to turn your back on everything because Christ is worth it. There was a temptation they had to abandon their profession of faith, to abandon their commitment to Jesus Christ. And the writer here is calling on them and by extension on us in the words of the Apostle Peter to make our salvation sure, to make our salvation sure. So he gives here three safeguards, three safeguards that we must implement. The first safeguard is here in verse one. On the back of your bulletin i've given you the outline there there is some room to scratch in a few notes if you care and there are some application questions which i commend to you in the week to come as you think on this message review those questions it would be even profitable to write out some answers to some of those questions as you move into the year 2010 together this is a serious topic for all of us 
First safeguard, verse 1, we must pay close attention to the truth. We must pay close attention to the truth. The writer starts out and he says, for this reason. Do you see that, verse 1? For this reason. That immediately is going to launch us back into chapter 1. He is summarizing what he has taught in chapter 1, and he is saying, based on that, something must happen. Well, what is it that he has taught in chapter 1? He has given a load of theology, actually, in the first few verses of chapter 1. He says, let me read it for you, beginning in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And then the writer goes on to demonstrate through a series of Old Testament citations how Christ has a greater name than the angels. So for this reason, what reason? Because of the reason that Christ is heir of all things. For the reason that Christ is the creator of the universe. For the reason that Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Because of the reason that Jesus Christ is the upholder of all things material and spiritual in the universe. Because of the reason that Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice for sin. Because of the reason that he is the king seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all angelic authority, therefore... Therefore, therefore, we need to pay attention. Look again, verse one, for this reason, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The writer is saying that this is not just a moral obligation we must fulfill. This is actually a a logical obligation. All of that being true, that Jesus Christ is the sum of all things, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what he has said. It is a logical necessity that comes upon us. All that we have heard, you see it again, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What we have heard, that is That is an elliptical expression. That is, there is a a lot of words that have been left out of that expression. And it's basically talking about the Christian faith. All those things that we have heard is shorthand way of saying the Christian faith, the gospel. The gospel. We must pay much closer attention to the gospel. Jude in verse 3 of Jude chapter 1 says, "...the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints." Speaking of the same, the same thing that we must pay close attention to, we must pay attention to the truth, the truth of the gospel. Notice, by the way, the author includes himself here in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay most closer attention. Do you see that? To what we have heard. He includes himself here in this in order to show the recipients that he is not above his own teaching. 
To stand here and to preach the Word of God does not remove the preacher from the Word of God. It does not put him over the Word of God. It puts him under the Word of God just as much as everyone else. The message that is preached here on a Sunday morning is for you and it is for me. I get the benefit of having lived with it all week long and under its, its condemnation all week long. And then I can lay it on you and you can have fun with it in the week to come. Ah, but for the grace of God, right? But for the grace of God. The preacher is part of what is going on here. And that's, that's what he's saying is we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He's not pointing the long bony finger at everyone else and saying, come do it like I do it. He's saying we are all underneath this same injunction. We are not above temptation. We are not above the problems of our hearers. Beloved, it is the gospel. It is the gospel that is the moral remedy for our moral disease. It is the gospel alone that can remedy our moral disease. But it is only an effectual remedy when it is understood, when it is believed, and when it is acted upon. It must be understood, it must be believed, and it must be acted upon. And when we fall short in any one of these areas, even understanding it or believing it or acting upon it, the remedy is to no effect. The remedy is to no effect. There cannot be a missing component here. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Verse 1 again. Look at it. Lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. This is a very interesting Greek word here. It speaks of things slipping away. The idea of a ring being lost from your finger. You're washing the dishes or something and the ring slides off your finger and down the drain before you know it. Drifting away. Or it's spoken of a boat. A boat that is being swept along past the harbor where it is to be moored. It carries the idea not just of simple forgetfulness, but it has the connotation of neglect. Neglect is very... There is a very strong component of the will involved in this idea of drifting away. When we reject God's revelation in Jesus Christ, there is no other safe haven and we will most certainly come to catastrophe. There is no other place to go. Most people don't overtly blaspheme and turn their backs on God. Those that have that are no longer walking in the faith, it is seldom that they just openly blaspheme and turn their back on God. That is not typical. What is typical is that people slowly drift away. They neglect the things of God. They grow cold to the things of God. You've probably heard the expression of how when there are many coals in the hearth and they're all together, they burn hot and they glow red. But if you were to pull one coal away from the fire and set it on the edge of the hearth, that over time it grows cold and the fire eventually goes out. That's what happens when we neglect the gospel in our own lives is that over time we begin to grow cold to the things of God. We we in, almost imperceptibly drift into spiritual ruin. I remember some number of years ago when we first moved here to California, we went to the beach and I was body surfing at the beach and having a grand old time. 
But unbeknownst to me, there was a strong current involved. And so every time I was coming in and going back out, I was moving further and further down the beach. And I did not pay attention to the lifeguard station in which I had gone into the water. And so after about an hour of, of body surfing, I came out of the water and I could not find, I couldn't find Carol and the blanket and, you know, I don't, where did everybody go? And I had moved many different uh, number of life-saving stations down the beach. I had been imperceptibly just drifted, pulled along by the current until I was no longer anywhere near where I had originally entered the water. That can happen in our Christian life. It happens slowly. It happens without us perceiving it. But eventually, we can wake up here at the end of 2009, and we have drifted a long way from Jesus Christ. And we say, how did I get here? What happened to me? We need to heed the warning. We need to heed the warning. The audience here and us need to hear, heed the warning of Jesus Christ when he says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. Listen to me. You are either moving closer to Jesus Christ or you are moving further away. Let me say it to you again. You are either moving closer to Jesus Christ or you are moving further away. You cannot remain in a fixed position. You will either come towards Him or you will move from Him. The currents of the world are pulling at you constantly. So you are either fighting the world and moving towards Jesus Christ or you are being drawn away from Him. Mark it down. It is axiomatic for the Christian life. If you are not pursuing Christ actively, you are drifting away. You are drifting away. Beloved, in order to drift away from Jesus Christ, all you have to do is nothing. Just do nothing and you will drift away. We must, first duty, we must pay close attention to the truth. How do we apply this teaching? I would like to give to you this morning in in each of these some very practical ways to apply this as we close out the year 2009 and enter into the year 2010. How do we apply the truth that we must pay close attention to the gospel? It begins by being an active listener in church. An active listener in church. No daydreaming. No sleeping. I know who you are who sleep. I know who you are. Many of you are predictable. I could probably set my watch by it. You have to fight. You have to fight to stay awake. And the fight, beloved, begins... Are you ready for this? Saturday night. Sunday morning begins when? Saturday night. Again, Sunday morning begins when? Saturday night. Saturday night. If you do not prepare yourself Saturday night, you will come into Sunday morning sluggish, fatigued, preoccupied, prone to let your mind wander and perhaps your eyelids to droop and you will sleep in the presence of the Almighty. 
That's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. Pay close attention to the truth by, number one, being an active listener. An active listener. Second, take time to read and ponder spiritual truth. Take time to read and ponder spiritual truth. Not just Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and do it all over again. No one has to tell you to eat. Why is it that we must constantly remind ourselves that we have to eat spiritually? We need to develop a hunger, an appetite for the Word of God. In your bulletin, here it is. Here's your bulletin. In your bulletin, open it up. This is the practical part. That means you have to do something. In your bulletin, in the middle, on the right hand, on the bottom, a little box that says, Our daily walk through the what? Through the scriptures. We put that in there for my health because it makes me feel better to have it in there. No. We put that in there for your benefit, for your benefit, because if you will follow along, and this is the exact reading program I use personally and have used for more than 25 years. If you will faithfully follow this simple reading program, which will take only 20 minutes a day, seven days a week, you will read through the entire Bible in a year. And then when you arrive at the end of December and you finish the book of Revelation in Revelation 22 and you read about the tree of life, the next day you will end up in Genesis chapter 1 and you will read for it again. And guess what you will encounter? The tree of life all over again. And as you commit yourself to this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the Word of God will dwell in you richly and will transform your thinking. Take the time to read and ponder spiritual truth. Join us. Join us on January 1st in the book of Genesis. Make 2010 the year that you read through the Bible. If you've done it before, make it the time of the year that you read through it again. And again, and again, and again. There's no end. Third way to apply this truth is that we must establish good and godly patterns in our lives in order to avoid slippage. We must establish good and godly patterns in our lives to avoid slippage. Here they are, some of them. It's just very simple things. Sunday school attendance. Sunday school begins at 9 a.m., 9 a.m. Everyone can be up by 9 o'clock. Okay, I know that. Everyone can be up by 9 o'clock. It begins at 9 o'clock. You come a little before 9 o'clock so that you're here and you can get some stout black coffee if that's what you need. And by the way, we've improved the church coffee. If it's been a long time since you've tried it, it's pretty good. Get here. Get yourself some coffee. We got rid of the donuts because people's sugar, blood sugar was going this way and then that way. And at about 1130, I was losing half the crowd. So we dumped the donuts. Get yourself some coffee or some tea. Be there at 9 o'clock. Fellowship among the people of God. Begin your day. And for those of you who are really robust, be here at 8 o'clock when we pray together. Every week, 8 o'clock. 
Oikos groups, small group Bible studies in the homes. This is another way that we can can work with each other so that we will pay attention to the truth. Be together in small groups. If you're not part of a small group ministry, become part of a small group ministry. January is a great time to start. Be involved in prayer. Be together and pray together with the body. We need you to pray, and you need to pray. So be there with us when we pray. We pray the first Sunday evening of every month. We also pray at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning. Those are just two of our group times of corporate prayer. Come and then be involved in ministry of the church somewhere. Spoke of this a couple of weeks ago. A full employment church. The body of Jesus Christ is to be engaged in full employment. Everyone who knows Jesus Christ has received a gift of the Spirit in order to minister for the benefit of the body. If you are not engaged, the body is suffering. If you are sitting on the sidelines, the body is suffering. Be engaged. Be engaged. Second, safeguard. Safeguard number two, to avoid spiritual drift. We must fear the consequences of failure. We must fear the consequences of failure. Verse 2, For if the words spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. The writer recognizes a reality that is a bit obscure to you and I in, in our day and age, and that is that the law somehow was given through angels. That's spoken of, by the way, in Acts chapter 7, verse 53. Stephen states that as a fact. Paul states this as a fact in Galatians 3 and verse 19. Exactly how that came about, I have no idea. But it was a commonly held understanding. And I have the inspired word of God here. And so it's a true understanding. That is that somehow the law of Moses on Mount Sinai came to Moses through the mediation of an angel. Beyond that, I have no idea. But he says the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable. That is that the revelation of God in the Mosaic law was said to be unalterable. It could not change. It's simply illustrated for us in the fact that the Ten Commandments, which are the summary of that law, were written by the very finger of God himself on tablets of stone. It was unalterable. It could not change. No one could change it. Only God could set it aside. The writer goes on to say that this unalterable law can be broken in one of two ways, both of which brought severe consequences. You see, first is transgression. Transgression. The word refers to a positive offense, an overt act to step across the line, to intentionally do something that we know is wrong. That is a transgression. Or disobedience. That refers to a, to a violation that comes about by failure to fulfill an injunction of God. It, it could be positive. It could be negative. God could tell you not to do something and you do it. He could tell you to do something and you don't do it. And in either case, that's an act of disobedience. It carries with it the idea of volition, of plugging your ears, of, of tuning God out, of ignoring his warnings or his invitations. So whether it be transgression or disobedience, the writer here argues, either case, the breaking of the law brings with it 
a just recompense. Do you see it, verse 2? It brings with it a just recompense. That is a punishment that fits the transgression. A punishment that suits the crime. Absolute correspondence between the offense and the consequence. It is always true because God alone is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't that right? So he's, he's reminding them of something they know. You like the Mosaic Law? Realize this. When you break the Mosaic Law, it brings terrifying consequences. Now, arguing from the lesser to the greater, he will go on to say that the more light you have, the more severe the punishment will be for your refusal to obey that light. The sanctions at Mount Sinai were severe and they were inescapable. Therefore, to ignore the greater revelation in Jesus Christ is to bring upon you an even greater consequence. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We read the Old Testament and we read about the various penalties that God brings upon the lawbreakers. And some of them sound very harsh to our ears. It sounds like God is, is really strict and, and, and really angry with people. For example, in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 to 36, it's the death penalty for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. They were told, you shall not gather firewood on the Sabbath. And some people go out to gather firewood and God says they must be executed. Why? Why? Why the death penalty for gathering firewood on the Sabbath? The answer is because the offender had defied the law of God. God had expressly said, you shall not do this. And they said, oh, yeah, I will. Yes, I will. I'll go do what I want to do. The result is death, death. Now, you and I, we live in the New Testament times, don't we? We live under the new covenant. Not the angry old God of the Old Testament, right? We live under the kind and gracious and grandfatherly old God of the New Testament. Isn't that right? No anger at all in the New Testament. That's what the liberals would have you believe. They'd have you thinking there were two different kinds of gods. Beloved, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the, the New, is He not? Is His anger with sin any diminished in the New Testament? Any lessened? Is His holiness been negotiated somehow in the New Testament? The answer is no. His wrath has been poured out on His own Son, Jesus Christ. But because of that, we should not for a moment think that God is not serious about sin. He is. He is. He is deadly serious. Remind yourself, every transgression is a capital offense. And Jesus Christ bore it for you. Every single time we choose sin over righteousness, we drive a nail to the hand of Jesus Christ. It is a very serious thing. Listen, if the penalties for the violation of the Mosaic law, which is inferior to the revelation of Jesus Christ, were so serious, what will happen to those who ignore Christ? What will happen to those who turn their back on the final revelation of God in His own Son? The consequence of sin should terrify us. It should absolutely terrify us.
must fear the consequence of failure. How do I apply this? First, do not presume upon the grace of God. Do not presume upon the grace of God. Do not say to yourself, He'll forgive me. God's in the forgiving business. It it doesn't matter. He'll always forgive me. Never, ever think those thoughts. Do not conduct yourself in that way. Do not presume upon the grace of God. Remember, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. He is still very, very serious about sin. Second, cultivate a healthy fear of God and a seriousness about sin. Cultivate a healthy fear of God and a seriousness about sin. Do not be flippant with sin. Do not be casual with our sin. Understand it is a deadly serious disease. It necessitated the very Son of God to go to the cross. Cultivate a fear of God and a seriousness about sin. And it will help you avoid spiritual drift. Pay close attention to the truth. Fear the consequences of failure. Third, third, remember the testimony of the witnesses. Remember the testimony of the witnesses. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various gifts, excuse me, various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. In order for these Jewish Christians to completely entrust themselves to so great a salvation, they would have to turn their back on everything else they've known. They would have to turn their back on their family. They would have to turn their back on their community. They would probably lose their employment. They would certainly lose the religious system that they've been brought up in. Everything they knew and held to be dear and precious would have to be lost in order to follow Jesus Christ. How do they know they have the truth? What kind of wager is that? That you will give up everything for this message? You better be pretty sure. You better be pretty sure of the reliability of this message. You must be convinced to the depth of your being of the reality of this message. A question that would naturally come to their minds is this. How can we be sure we have the truth? How, how can I be sure that Jesus really is the Messiah? And that by believing on his name, my sin is forgiven. That I no longer have to go to the temple. That I no longer have to offer the sacrifices that, more than, that have for more than a thousand years been offered by our people. There has been only one way to God. And now you're asking me to give it all up for Christ alone. How do I know it's true? How do I know? None of us are abandoning a thousand year tradition, are we? 
But it's still a legitimate question that, that someone would have, a thinking person. Particularly when you're saying to someone, give yourself to Jesus Christ by faith and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know that I need to give up on my religious rituals? How do I know that, that performing good works will do me no good and in fact will do me harm in the procuring of my salvation. There are a lot of religions in the world. How do I know that this is the one? How do I know when you tell me to turn my back on everything for this one? How do I know? They never heard him, the Lord Jesus, speak. Notice verse 3, he says, this great salvation, he's speaking of the gospel here, he says, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord. That is, they didn't hear it. Jesus didn't come and preach to them. They never personally heard the message of Jesus Christ. They heard it through the witnesses. You see it? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. They were relying on others to tell them. How can you cling to such things? How do you know? The answer is that God has given an unimpeachable chain of witnesses. That's how you know. And it's spoken of right here. Spoken first through the Lord, confirmed by those who hear God bearing them witness. There is a a chain of events here that makes their testimony unimpeachable. It began with Jesus Christ himself, Matthew chapter 4, and in verse 17 where it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is Christ who preached the gospel first. He came from the Father to make known the gospel to mankind. But all mankind did not hear him speak. But others did. Secondly, confirmed by eyewitnesses. Those who did hear him speak are the ones who have now relayed the message to these Hebrew Christians here. And beloved, they've relayed the message to you and I as well. Turn over to the right to First John. 1 John chapter 1, page 1218. Has anyone heard the oral word of Jesus Christ preaching? No, you haven't. Have any of you heard the oral message of his eyewitnesses, that is, his apostles preaching? No, you haven't. No, you haven't. But we still have the eyewitnesses. Look here with me at John 1. Just just the first few verses. John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, 
And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. What is he saying? He's saying that that we were with Jesus Christ. We saw him. We handled him. We have heard the message of Jesus Christ. And we are in fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And we invite you to join in our fellowship. Join with us in fellowship with the Father. And we have written down what we heard. We have written it down. Beloved, we enter into the same chain of eyewitnesses, the same unimpeachable chain. And here it is. Here it is. In fact, in 2 Peter, we're told we have the word made more sure. The very written word of Jesus Christ. These eyewitnesses, by the way, according to the writer here, the Hebrews back in Hebrews chapter two. Were authenticated by God himself. You see it? God bore witness with them by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that these writers of the New Testament are the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ? The answer is is because God confirmed them through the miracles. The reason for the miraculous was to confirm the message and the messenger. It has always been that way in the history of Israel. There have been three great periods of miracles in the ancient nation of Israel, each of them associated with a time of revelation when a man of God spoke for God to the people. It began in their deliverance from Egypt and the conquest of the promised land when God spoke through Moses and then through Joshua. Their testimony was confirmed by miracles, by signs and by wonders. The second great period were the days of Elijah and Elisha when the nation was in mortal danger of of being swallowed up by Baal and God spoke to the nation through those two prophets and confirmed their message and they as messengers through the miraculous gifts. And then third, God sent forth His own Son into the world to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he confirmed his message and the messenger with miracles. Jesus himself said, listen, if you don't believe what I'm saying, at least believe the miracles that I do. They are my certification from God. And his spokesman into the book of Acts Those that had been with him, they were commissioned to go into all the world and make disciples. Their authority and their message was confirmed by the miraculous as well. And on your lap is your personal copy of the Word of God. Their very message. Their very message. So although these Hebrew Christians had not personally heard the gospel from the mouth of Jesus Christ, they have it through the testimony of certified, authenticated eyewitnesses. And beloved, we have it as well. We have it as well. When we read, when we believe, and when we live in accordance with the testimony that they have left for us, we have 
the anchor for our soul. You want to avoid spiritual drift? It comes back to this again. It's back to this again. Beloved, there is no escaping the Word of God. By the way, when you pass this Word on, you become another link in the great chain that stretches back to antiquity. How do I apply this truth? How do I apply the truth? Simply this. Thank that person who brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ the end of this year. Reflect back. For some of you, you will go many years back. For others of you, not so far. Think back. Who was it that brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to me? And thank them. Thank them. Who was it that has been significant in your Christian life, that has poured themselves into you and helped you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Thank them. They have been a faithful witness. Become part of the active gospel chain, passing on the truth to the next generation. And finally, Make a list. Make a private list of all the people who would be devastated if you were to walk away from the faith. Think it through. Whose lives would be ruined if I were to turn my back on Jesus Christ? If I were to neglect the gospel and begin to drift away from the truth What ruin would I wreck upon my family, my friends? Who would be devastated by such a thing? Make such a list and then commit before God to never hurt them in this way. Never. Beloved, if we don't tie ourselves fast to the truth of the gospel, we will drift away. If 2009 has been a drifting year for you, now's the time to come back home. Confess before God your coldness of heart. You're not telling Him anything, by the way, He does not already know. But you need to confess it because you need to articulate it with your own mouth. You need, to, you need to own it. You need to say, God, I have neglected you this year. I had good intentions, Lord, when I started the year. But one thing after another has come in and I have allowed them to crowd you out of my life. So now that I all I do is give you lip service. My heart is cold towards you. I seldom pray. I read my Bible even less. It sits week after week gathering dust. I could leave it in church for two weeks and no one would even know. Least of all me. Oh Lord, forgive me. Forgive my hardness of heart. Forgive my cold affections. And rekindle a passion for the truth in me. Give me your grace and and help me to, to begin again on the path of righteousness. To put away those things that seduce my heart beloved now's the time 
Now is the time. If by the grace of God you find yourself walking closely at the end of this year, praise the Lord, all, all glory to Him, and excel still more. Excel still more. Pursue Him. Chase after Him. I will not let you go until you bless me. Grab a hold. Go for a ride. And maybe you don't know him at all. Maybe you arrive at the end of the year and you just flat don't know him at all. If that's the case, today is the day of salvation. Right now, right here, right at this time. When I close my eyes to pray, you pray too, and you call out to God in Christ to save you. You confess your sin and your need for the deliverer. You say, Jesus, I believe you died in my place and that you rose again to eternal life and that by grace, believing on you and your sacrifice, I too can have your eternal life. And God will grant it to you. If you will search for him, you will find him. The scriptures make it clear. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is good for us to come to the end of the year and to take time to take a spiritual inventory. The month of December has been such a blur for most of us, Lord. It's not that we have been inactive and In fact, we have been very active, involved in many, many things, tending to many different relationships. The pressing need of, of business that comes upon us at this time of year, the social obligations that must be fulfilled. So many things, the news that we read, our Father, or hear on the television day after day, which is so glum and depressing. All of these things can weigh upon our hearts and and cause us to go cold. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for such foolishness. To think that we could live without spiritual food. We're starving, Lord. Feed us, your people. Let us feast on the word of God. And let this year, 2010, be a year unlike any we have ever known. Kindle within our hearts a, a passion for Jesus Christ that would burn hot and that 12 months from now we would look back and we would go, wow, look what you have done, Lord. All to your glory. Help us, your people. And we will be helped. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.